Bernadette is going to come and read to us from Galatians chapter 2. As you know, we're working our way through reading through the book as well. So Bernadette is going to read Galatians 2 to us. Thank you, Bernadette. Okay, this is Paul accepted by the apostles. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law 
so that I might live in God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Thank you, Bernadette. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it speaks across the generations and across our cultures. We thank you that it is the word of life. And Holy Spirit, we pray you'll bless it to us this morning as we dig in it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's quite a passage, isn't it? And uh, you could spend probably several hours on it, but we don't have that time. But we're going to dig in. It, as you're probably aware, they're just reading over it. It has to do with the law, and it has to do with grace and with faith. And one of the biggest questions uh, relating to the, the Christian life is the question of faith and works. Is it really faith only, or is it faith and works? And if so, how much faith and how much works? I mean, you know, is it 90% faith and 10% works? Is it 80-20? Is it 50-50? Or is it even going the other way? And if so, what, what kind of works? It's a question that I found plagues people right up to the very end. I have sat with people as they have approached uh, their dying day. People who've known the gospel of Jesus Christ, who've known the grace of God, and you would have thought, understood this, and yet in those moments of battle rages, you see, the enemy will be after our souls even right to the end. We've do, do we, we do live in a spiritual battle right to the end of our days. And on several occasions, I've sat with people who've said, Richard, I don't know whether I've done enough. I don't know whether you've ever heard anyone say that. I don't know whether I have ever done enough. And I've had to point them back to Jesus. Point them back to Jesus. And largely, this is what Galatians is all about. Do I need works to be saved? Or do I need works to belong in the covenant community? Do I need works to, to stay saved? And Paul has, as Barney was saying last week, grave concerns over the church in Galatia. He doesn't start off with his usual thankfulness. He starts off with his great concern. I'm amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. A gospel that was taking them back to the law, to works, to merit. A gospel that was, in fact, no gospel at all. A gospel that was definitely not good news. And in some versions of chapter 4 and verse 15, it says, what, what happened to all your joy? You see, they had lost something. And one of the evidences of that was that they had lost their joy. They had lost their sense of blessing. The Good News translation says, you were so happy. What happened to you? You see, legalism is a, a joy killer. It robs us. And a sign that we are get, perhaps going down the legalistic path is we lose our joy. Christian life becomes arduous. It becomes difficult. It becomes joyless. And in answer to his accusers, Paul affirms his call to be an apostle, and he shares how he received the gospel by revelation in chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, then goes on to say how he went to Jerusalem to check this out with the apostles, and they were quite happy. 
that the gospel, the good news that he was preaching was indeed the true gospel. That's in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, the first half of this chapter. And, uh, and then he tells them about an occasion that Peter visited him when he was in Antioch to further illustrate his point. So this is in verses 11 to, 16, 11 to 21, which we're dealing with this morning. Now, Peter knew the liberating power of the gospel, and he was the first person to, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And, uh, and uh, when he arrived in Antioch, he was, he was quite happy to, to sit down and to eat with the, with the Gentiles, something that would have been unheard of for the Jew. But then some Jews come along, they come up from Jerusalem, from the circumcision party, and everything changes. He looks at them and he listens to them, and he decides to withdraw his fellowship from the Gentile Christians and go and sit with the Jews. And not only that, his influence is such that he leads the rest of the Jews in this church astray as well, and Barnabas also. This wasn't a case of theological conviction for, for Peter, but one of cowardice. He knew the truth as it was in Jesus and as it is in the gospel, but he compromised it out of fear. Fear of others, fear of what they would think, fear of rejection, fear of losing faith with, face with those who had some kind of status in Jerusalem. The question is, are we like that? Can we be like that? Can we live out of fear with regard to others, with regard to our Christian faith? As far as Paul was concerned, this was, this was hypocrisy. It was a denial of the, the very gospel, and it was in danger of destroying the very essence of the gospel. And Paul needed to nip it in the bud, and that he did before it did any more damage. And he says in 2 verse 11, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Praise God, Peter was able to take rebuke from a brother and co-worker in Christ. And there's a question for us there is, are we prepared to be challenged at times? Expediency, you see, would never, should never be the operating principle of our lives. Truth must take precedence over politics, power, and practicality. The concern for Paul is the same thing was happening to the church in Galatia. There were those who had infiltrated their numbers and they were seeking to add law to grace, works to faith. And it's a problem, you know, that comes around time and time again. In a survey conducted in the United States in 2016, three quarters of Americans agreed that people must contribute their own personal effort to salvation. Three quarters. I wonder what the case would be like over here. That idea that somehow we have to contribute something. Even if we've encountered the grace, we are in contributing something that will add to our assurance. There is a, a, a new way, some of you may have heard of it, of looking at some of Paul's teachings. It's called the New Perspective, or New Perspectives, because it's now multiplied out into all sorts of different uh, strands. But it's what's called covenantal gnomism, which is grace and law mixed together. It, you're brought in or saved by grace alone, but it is maintained by covenant membership, by living in accordance with covenant guidelines, which is the law. And according to the new perspective on Paul, which is out there and it's amongst evangelicals, there is no true assurance until that day when we arrive in heaven and we have that final justification, that final vindication. And that final vindication is based on works, albeit done by the Holy Spirit. 
To my mind, that makes Romans 8 verse 1 redundant. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means then that there's no assurance this side of heaven if we go down that route. It is, in my mind, an altogether different gospel, another gospel. And it is not the gospel, therefore. Galatians 2 verse 16 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. You've got works of the law mentioned three times in that verse. The new perspective sees these as identity markers of circumcision, the Sabbath, and food laws, but they are far, far more than that. It's anything that we can do to, to merit salvation or final justification. Scripture says in Ephesians 2 verse 8, that we are saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then again in Romans 4 verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, I want to say that again, who justifies the ungodly, it's not he justifies those who are improving themselves, he justifies the ungodly, faith is credited as righteousness. And so again, Romans 8, verse 1, it leads right into that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the absolute bedrock of the gospel. Without it, there is no good news, and without it, we have no church. We have nothing to offer anybody. It was the radical, life-transforming message of the early church. It was what the Reformation was all about back in the 1500s. The church then was bogged down in power, in politics, in performance and in penance. The Roman Catholic Church believed in infused righteousness, what I, have ter what I would term sacramental justification. In other words, the more you did the stuff, the more you got justified. And so uh, you, you went to baptism, you there was baptism, there was confirmation, there was confession, there was mass, there was the last rites, etc., etc. And if you didn't have enough of those when you died, you went to purgatory to try and improve on yourself a bit more in the hope that you might finally be justified. Martin Luther, an amazing story. If you've never read or seen anything about Martin Luther, go read. Go watch the film about Martin, Martin Luther. But he was a, a, a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and he sought peace with God. He knew he didn't have it for everything that he did. He, he went through various acts and different ways to try and earn peace with God. And one day, in his studies, the scripture, the just shall live by faith, came alive to him, and he suddenly saw the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. It transformed him, and he nailed his 95 theses to the, the door of the church in Wittenberg. And that was like putting it out on Twitter in those days. You, go, you went and put it on the door, and everybody walking by, whoa, look at this, have you seen this? And it had a massive impact and liberated the whole of Europe from darkness at that time. Such an amazing thing indeed. You see, justification is not a process. It is a legal declaration. 
we are declared right with God through faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It's not based on how you feel uh, or what we are feeling. You, you know, there are times I don't feel justified. Yeah? Perhaps you're, perhaps you're better than me on that, this one. But there are times I don't feel justified. But my, it doesn't rest in here. It rests in here in the word of God, which says that he justifies the ungodly through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, what a gospel. What a gospel. And we might say, well, how? How does this happen? Because a transaction took place. Christ came and he took on human flesh. And he lived here on our behalf. And he lived out the law of God completely as a man dependent on God in the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived it perfectly so that when he finally appears before Pilate, Pilate says, I can find no fault in this man. None at all. So he lives out the righteousness of God. And, and, and then he, he, he takes our sins, all that was wrong about us, and he bears them on the cross. And there's a shocking uh, uh, paragraph in Martin Luther. I love Martin Luther. Martin Luther caught, speaks my kind of language. If you want to read a book on Galatians, go and read his commentary on Galatians. It's just full of, I've got a copy, and it's, it's underlined, it's yellow, it's all sorts, you know. I, I just love it. Because he, he had discovered the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and he knew its liberating power. You see, the enemy tries to rob us of that. And this is what he says. He says, all the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that ever there was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier. You will become Paul the persecutor blasphemer and cruel oppressor. You will become David, that adulterer. You will become Adam, that sinner, which did eat the apple in paradise. And if he were alive today, he would say, he would become you as well, and you, and you, and you, and you, with all that you know is wrong about yourself. That's staggering, isn't it? That this is what Jesus should do for us. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, 21, it says that he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not in ourselves, but in him. Hallelujah. I mean, this, this is amazing stuff, isn't it? If there's a phrase that I like, it's this. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You should do better than that. Because, I mean, it is staggering. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Hallelujah. And so Scripture is able to say, Paul is able to say that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. One of the things I find staggering about the way Paul writes his letter is uh, the, the way he writes other letters. So you go back to the book of Corinthians, and you see how he thanks God for the Corinthians. And you look at this church, and you think, what a messy church. I mean, goodness me, the, the sin problems, the issues he was having to deal with in that church. And yet he says to them, I thank God for you. And I thank God for the gift of his spirit that is at work among you. But he doesn't do that with the church at Galatia, because it is now living by the flesh. It's living in works. And that kills the life of the Spirit. 
Jesus plus nothing equals everything. For you are saved by grace through faith, not from works, so that no one can boast, says Ephesians. You see, justified is more than just simply not guilty, but is just to be made right as he is right. It is to receive to ourselves an, an alien righteousness. That means one that is not our own. And one of the best ways I can think of illustrating this is to imagine yourself as being millions and millions of pounds in debt. And there you are, you know, trying to pay it off in some way out of your, 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 your wages each week. And the impossibility as you, you do so, as you, you realize that, that however good you and well you may be appearing to do, you are never going to pay off your debt. And then somebody, so you have a, 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 a minus account. I mean, it is red all over, you know. And then someone comes along and pays off your debt. I mean, if that was you, I bet you'd go hallelujah, wouldn't you? Yeah, I bet you'd really get excited and say, well, now I am debt free. Hallelujah. And that's what Jesus did for us. He came and he paid off our debt. So we went from a, a minus account to a zero account. But you know, I would still have problems with that. And I don't know whether you can see what the problem is. Do you know what it is? I would worry about going back into debt. Yeah? And so this person comes along and he, he not only pays off your debt and he brings it to a zero account, he then stashes your account with everything that you're going to need for the rest of your life. Yeah? That is justification. You see, Jesus not only paid the price for our sin and cleared our debt and gave us a zero account, and that would be good, but he then filled up the account with his righteousness so that we are the righteousness of God in him. Hallelujah. I think that's exciting, isn't it? It's, it's, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So we've gone from this minus account, this terribly minus account, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're never going to be good enough to earn your way to heaven, to earn your way into God's heart and into that God's family. Jesus came and did that for you. And by simply coming to that knowledge that you, you've sinned and you can't do anything about it, realize Jesus has done, you can be saved this morning. You can be forgiven you can have a brand new life. You can have an account that is filled right up to the top and will be satisfactory to the day that you die. Hallelujah. And I know when I've sat with people in their dying days and they've said to me, Richard, I don't know whether I've done enough. Good Christians. Christians who believed in the grace of God. And the enemy comes in in those dark moments and begins to make them think about their lives. I said to them, it's never been whether, about whether you've done enough. The question is, has he done enough? Has he done enough? Has he done enough? And the answer is yes. A mighty yes indeed. Because you see, for every one of us in, that, in this room, when we reach that time, that will be our only basis our only basis. 
We're saved by grace through faith. This not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. You see, in chapter 4, verse 19, Paul says to them, he is suffering labor pains until Christ is formed in you. That's the concern of every, every church leader, every pastor, every elder. He knows that Christ will not be formed in, by the works, formed in them by the works of the law, by human effort, by performance. That produces ugly distortions. But through faith in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's very easy, believe you me, to slip into performance-oriented Christianity. I can do that dead easy because I'm a perfectionist by nature. And I guess there are perfectionists in this room. It's one of those things that God needs to break over our lives. You're a perfectionist. God calls us into his family by his grace. He keeps us in his family by his grace. He gives us gifts by his grace. Yeah? And that this will come out next week when Jazz is sharing, I believe it is, and, and we talk about the, the life of the Spirit. You know, God gives his Spirit, not because we're, we're doing well as Christians, not because you're managing now to have an hour of prayer a day or reading six chapters of the Bible a day or coming to every church meeting that there is. You're not clocking up points with God. It's because of Jesus. And this is a staggering thing when you read the book of Corinthians. They, they were messed up in so many different ways, but they still knew the power of God amongst them. Sometimes we can be so right, we can be wrong. You know, we can be Pharisees and, and, and we believe we're earning something with God and then we wonder where the life has gone. He works by grace through faith. Now someone will probably, and I need to question this, to just close this down somehow and draw it in here. You know your Bible, you'll probably come up to me afterwards and say, hang on a minute, Richard, what about James? <laughs> Obviously some of you already know. <laughs> what about James? You know, because doesn't James say that faith without works is dead? Yeah? does, doesn't he? But you know, James uses the word salvation five times in his book, saved five times. And not once does it refer to salvation. We need to remember that. One of the things I've learned through being a student over years is is always ask how a writer is using a word. You see, say, say the word for salvation is a big word. It's a, it's a word about deliverance and so on. And so when James talks about being saved and living saved lives in his book, he is talking about not eternal salvation, but the lives we're living in the present. Because see, sin can still have consequence in, the, in our lives. And so he says, faith without works is dead in chapter 2. He's not talking about earning your salvation. He's talking about adding fuel to, his, to your faith, adding fuel to, you, to it. I think the best way I can illustrate that is the times I've taken uh, young people and others with me on, on journeys to, say, Romania or, or Kenya and, and uh, on ministry trips and... Uh, and those people have, have lived with this environment, a safe and secure environment, as it were. But suddenly they've had to trust God for something. They've had to believe God. Well, perhaps we've said as a church, look, we'll, we'll go half on it, and you, you've got to believe God for the rest and all the rest of it. And you take them away on a trip, and, and suddenly you see their faith come alive. Because, see, as they add works to their faith, this is not 
works adding to saving faith. This is works, if you like, putting fuel on the fire of their faith so that it burns brighter and more efficiently. And, so as a, as a, and then you bring them back and you get them share testimonies in church. And they say, oh, I, I didn't have the money and I believe God for this. And, and suddenly God came and he, he, there was this gift and this gift and that gift and so on. And then when I was there, you know, I, I'd never shared in a bit before. And I, I did this and that. I shared my testimony for the first time and I just felt God was right. Previously, their faith, perhaps, without the works, was down here. But it was real faith. Real faith. But then as they began to add to their faith, as they began to trust God for different things, added fuel to their faith, it came alive in new ways. I'd love to say a whole lot more on that, but I can't. But let's, let's try and draw in there, shall we? It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. We're free from earning God's approval from moral and religious performance from externalism, legalism. We're free to live by faith in the way of the Spirit, to be transformed from the inside out. I wonder this morning, let's just stand, shall we? I'm just going to pray a prayer. Holy Spirit, Take your word and apply it to our hearts. You know each of our lives. You know what we need. Holy Spirit, may that gospel bring joy to our hearts and lives. May that gospel bring freedom. May that gospel bring blessing. Come, Holy Spirit, and where we've lost sight of Jesus, oh God, may we capture a fresh view of him and what he's done for us to know that we are justified by grace through faith alone, not of works, so that nobody should boast. In Jesus' name, amen.